Well, uh, good evening. It's uh, 6.30 p.m., and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley, and I'm guessing Jim Dwyer will be joining us momentarily. He might have gotten tied up with the uh, 4th of July sorts of uh, celebrations. It's a funny week this week with the 4th falling on a Tuesday, it's sort of the... Uh, <laughs> Four-day week. I'm sure that uh, more personal days were taken today than uh, in quite some time in America. Even the stock market shut down a little early. Well, um, the uh, presidential race in Mexico, by the way, is uh, being characterized as too close to call. Apparently, uh, Felipe Calderon, the sort of right-of-center candidate, has a very narrow lead over uh, Obrador. And a recount <laughs> seems likely. Uh, my only observation about uh, the fact that the center-right candidate seems to have narrowly prevailed is that it will probably uh, that probably means that things will just continue uh, with the status quo. Uh, and this is probably actually at the end of the day not a good thing uh, for the United States. Obrador had uh, ambitious. Uh, an ambitious domestic agenda to help the, the poor uh, in Mexico. And, of course, this is part of the immigration problem that we have here in the United States is the fact that uh, Mexico has uh, way too many uh, indigent people. And, of course, they come across our borders seeking work. So we'll uh, let the Mexican uh, democracy uh <laughs> Uh, process work and see what happens. Uh, my understanding is they're not going to announce a winner on this uh, in this presidential race until later in the week. And it seems that while hanging chads are not involved, uh, I did see uh, something about the ballots. Um, basically, uh, if you improperly mark your ballot, uh, it can be disqualified. So we'll uh, see what happened. Uh, we'll see what happens in upcoming uh, days here regarding that. Uh, Development. I wanted to give out a brain damage award to the uh, oh the, the the big hue and cry about the uh, the New York Times is uh, publishing uh, this uh, information about the uh, the Swift uh, uh, money. Uh, I don't even know what to call it. Uh, the, this is the uh, the, the uh, so-called terror uh, war on terror thing that's. Uh, part of uh, the boasting that the Bush administration has been engaged in uh, from the get-go, uh, just days after 9-11, that they were looking at financial transactions. Uh, of course, the Wall Street Journal and L.A. Times uh, also published uh, information about this uh, the, uh, the SWIFT uh, thing. And it's uh, the, the, the outrage at the New York Times is completely unjustified. In fact, I went back and sort of examined why I think the Bush administration is outraged at the New York Times, and it's not um, an article about SWIFT, uh, which of course uh, uh, is, is appropriate because of the so-called SWIFT boat ads that, the, that we had uh, back uh, in the last presidential election here in the United States. No, I think the outrage is over the article that actually appeared in the New York Times earlier in the month by Eric Lipton uh, regarding the uh, incredible, as he puts it, money pot uh, 
that's going on involving the Department of Homeland Security and their involvement in lobbying. Just to give you an idea about what this uh, involves, because uh, the article actually appeared shortly before um, the article about SWIFT. Um, on the, uh, let me get the date here, on the 18th of June uh, in the Sunday Times, Eric Lipton had an article uh, in which he details that at least 90 officials, and I'm quoting here from the article, at the Department of Homeland Security or the White House Office of Homeland Security, including officials like Tom Ridge, James Loy, and Asa Hutchinson, um, are now all consultants or lobbyists for companies that collectively do billions of dollars worth of business in the domestic security um, sector. And uh, he reported that more than two-thirds of the department's most senior executives in the first five years moved through this revolving door. A um, couple of days later, the New York Times, in an, one of their unsigned editorial, writes, um, summarizes basically this article, and it's uh, pretty amazing stuff uh, because even Michael Brown of FEMA fame has started a consulting firm, as the New York Times notes. It's unbelievable because they make the uh, observation um, that this is uh, rather remarkable given their uh, known incompetence at directing the Department of Homeland Security. So much like the war in Iraq, which is turning out to be a uh, financial uh, boondoggle of, of, the, of the first order, uh, these department um, officials have taken advantage of a loophole uh, in the government's uh, lobbying laws, and I'll give you the details on this, quoting from the New York Times' June 20th unsigned editorial. They write, uh, if Homeland Security is the central concern of the Bush administration, one wonders how it managed to create a department in which so many of the top brass were so eager to quit the crusade so soon and cash in so efficiently. But the worst effect of this kind of take-the-money-and-run mentality is on the people left behind. Um, how many of them, having watched others land lucrative jobs as lobbyists, will temper their own judgments about what systems to buy and what consultants to use with an eye on their private sector prospects. To stop the kind of destructive back-scratching, Congress passed a law in 1962 that required former officials to wait a year before lobbying colleagues, but officials in the Homeland Security managed to get a loophole through the Government uh, Office of Ethics in 2004. It divided the department into seven areas and allowed former employees to lobby all but the one in which they worked. Uh, the New York Times concludes that this ruling should be revisited immediately, and uh, they note, uh, in the meantime, let's hope that Homeland Security hasn't left the airport screening process as ridden with holes as its own ethic rules are. And uh, the Eric Lipton article is probably why the Bush administration is really outraged at the New York Times. Of course, uh, there were no national security secrets revealed uh, in that article uh, in any way, shape, or form. And, in fact, the uh, agency SWIFT 
it's my understanding, had published on their own website um, the details of the program itself. So uh, spare us the crocodile tears, Mr. Cheney and other uh, top uh, Republicans. Peter King is uh, saying that the New York Times should be prosecuted. And it's just completely unclear why the New York Times, other than the fact that they've been exposing uh, these kinds of abuses of the Bush administration's uh, management of government. Uh, Of course, they always want government off our backs, but they uh, seem to have no problem profiting from these lucrative contracts. And the Lipton article details, it's got a nice flow chart if you want to go back and check this out in the Sunday, June 18th edition of all these top officials, all the companies that they're involved in, uh, their names, uh, some of their faces, (laughs) and it's rather remarkable uh, because basically we're talking here about 76 Department of Homeland Security officials and 18 White House slash executive branch officials that now seem to be profiting quite handsomely from the so-called War on Terror. And uh, we, of course, know that there is uh, no real War on Terror. There's merely uh, two sort of half-arsed occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq that are beleaguering uh, the United States today. Um, Bush keeps asserting we're at war, uh, but the war as such ended quite some time ago. And let's remember that these are not wars in any particular definitional sense of the world. These are uh, third world countries that America successfully uh, used its air power on to uh, really wreak incredible damage. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was mentioning that I wanted to talk a little bit about the economy because um, uh, there have been a lot of interesting goings-on in that uh, area in the last couple of weeks. Of course, just last week, the uh, Federal Reserve uh, raised interest rates for the 17th straight session of the uh, of the board, and uh, there's a big debate about whether they're done with the... Uh, with the uh, tightening, so to speak, um, but I suspect that there will be maybe a few more uh, quarter point increases over the next couple of months. And later this week, we'll be getting some unemployment numbers. Now, um, not long ago, I read a very good book called Class Matters, and this is a collection of essays. Uh, by various uh, economists and uh, uh, social activists, shall we say, uh, detailing the big problem uh, in America about really what I call the big problem, which is the distribution of wealth. I wanted to quote just a couple of things regarding uh, some of the myths that are perpetrated by the... um, Media regarding, for instance, stock ownership. For instance, um, and I'm just quoting here from an article by Heather Bushy and Christine Weller, they write that despite claims in the 1990s that Wall Street had become as familiar to Americans as Main Street, equity investing is still primarily the domain of the well-to-do. 
In 2001, the first year in which uh, the share of households with any stock holdings exceeded 50%, stock ownership remained very unevenly distributed. Only 12% of households in the bottom income quintile had any stock holdings at all, compared to 90% of holdings in the top quintile. The actual amount of holdings is heavily concentrated amongst the wealthiest Americans. In 2001, the top 10% controlled 77% of all stock market holdings. And, of course, it's this top 10% that are uh, reaping these huge uh, tax cut benefits that the Bush administration continues to dole out um, while the deficits just keep exploding. And it's interesting that the new Treasury Secretary um, talked about the big problems with the uh, growing deficit. And, of course, nothing's being done about that. Another interesting observation uh, in this uh, book, Class Matters, uh, from an article by David Smith and Heather McGee, they write that uh, Elizabeth Warren and Amelia um, Tai Agi Warren calculate that the average two-income, two-child family today makes 75% more in inflation-adjusted dollars but has actually less to spend than one-income families did 30 years ago. They spend 21% less on clothing, 22% less on food, and 44% less on appliances compared to one-income families uh, a generation ago. But they spend 69% more in inflation-adjusted dollars on their home mortgage and 61% more on health insurance. They spend nearly $10,000 almost a quarter of their after-tax income annually on child care, a new and necessary expense. 75% of boomer women are employed, and 9 million households are still headed by single women with children. So you can see why there's this perception in the American economy that um, things are not quite as rosy as the White House Uh, would suggest. For instance, it's always been fascinating to me when the unemployment uh, report comes out uh, every month to compare the difference in the two surveys. There's a household survey. Uh, This is where they actually call people up. And then there's the payroll um, numbers. And the payroll numbers, in my opinion, are far more accurate. because those are actually jobs that have been created uh, that are documented. Uh, the other problem, of course, with household surveys is that they uh, don't ever get a hold of people that don't have phones or maybe don't answer phones. <laughs> Many people, of course, uh, screen their calls uh, using their phone answering machine. <laughs> and, of course, we know for a fact that the poorer states in America, for instance, I once read that Mississippi... Uh, 80, only 88% of the people that live in Mississippi actually have a phone. So uh, people that don't own phones are never interviewed in the so-called household survey. And this is why you always see a discrepancy uh, in these two uh, rates. Uh, the payroll survey is uh, far more relevant. And what it's shown over the past year, by the way, 
is that um, other than a couple of months, uh, this economy is not creating the necessary 150,000 jobs per month to, uh, shall we say, break even. And this is why um, you, you, you have these kind of odd numbers showing that the unemployment rate is actually declining uh, when really job growth is exceedingly stagnant. And in addition, of course, wage growth uh, is uh, stagnant. So, for instance, in the uh, household survey in May, uh, in which they based the uh, unemployment rate on, this is based on a survey of 60,000 households, and it showed that 288,000 people said they found employment uh, in the last month. Interestingly, the payroll numbers showed that only 75,000 jobs were actually created. So this is where this uh, discrepancy uh, comes into play. Uh, the average worker hourly earnings, by the way, in uh, May stood at uh, $16.62 per hour. Uh, that, of course is an example of how an economic statistic can be misleading because average means uh, they're taking the high and low um, and figuring it all out, you know, dividing by the total. They really should be taking uh, the, the median um, wage because that would more accurately reflect um, where people are really at in, the, in this economy. Um, so it would be interesting to see what happens uh, with this new uh, unemployment number? Other important things uh, from the last month's um, statistics, in my opinion, were that retailers shed 27,000 jobs in May, suggesting that <clears throat> store owners anticipated a slowdown, even though retail sales have been fairly strong. Manufacturing companies trimmed their workforce by 14,000. The biggest area of job creation were, quote, in professional and business services, whatever the heck that is, health care and education. Um, that's rather odd because <laughs> you would think uh, at, the, uh, at the end of May that uh, education would be winding down uh, as many schools are out for the summer. Um, it's odd that wholesalers, wholesalers added jobs, uh, supposedly adding 108,000 uh, last month. Um, so those are rather anomalous numbers, in my opinion, and uh, somewhat fishy. Now, let's see. I've lost my... Uh, here it is. Um, what else did I want to talk? Oh, oh, yes, the Hamden case. Very interesting that the Bush administration uh, took a loss on, uh, on that. That was the... Uh, he was the prisoner that sued... Uh, at Guantanamo Bay uh, prison that sued uh, Rumsfeld, Hamden versus Rumsfeld. And, of course, what was interesting about the Supreme Court's uh, um, work over the past year is uh, how conservative Alito and Roberts are turning out to be, uh, and as predicted by all experts that uh, the new swing vote is now Anthony Kennedy, no longer Sandra Day O'Connor, and as a result, um, however Kennedy votes is often how these cases are decided. And uh, 
in part, uh, the Hamdan case was a serious rebuke to the Bush administration's um, policies at uh, Gitmo and uh, not altogether unexpected. Um, my own opinion is that, of course, prisoners of war need hearings. Of course, there needs to be some sort of judicial uh, you, you know, you just can't put people in jail and call them enemy combatants. It was very interesting to hear many of the lawyers that argued this case before the uh, Supreme Court make the observation that the Bush administration created a new word, enemy combatant. Uh, there is no such thing uh, under the Geneva rules. And thus the Supreme Court now will... Um, require the Bush administration in some sense to comply with the Geneva Accords regarding POWs and people that are picked up on the battlefield. Now, rumor has it the Congress is going to pass some new legislation accommodating the Bush administration's opinion opinions on the, on the, on the whole general subject, so we'll wait and see how that goes. But certainly Guantanamo Bay is an absolute disgrace uh, to America's uh, reputation around the world, and um, it needs to be shut down. But uh, Bush, Bush's idea of, quote, shutting it down, you know, this is where uh, reality and uh, perception are uh, far apart. So um, keep an eye on Kennedy and how he votes in upcoming Cases and realize that the Guantanamo case, by the way, was decided uh, in, in terms of the rebuke of the Bush administration only by a five to four margin. So when you hear Ann Coulter, um, that harridan of the right wing, praying for uh, Justice Stevens's death, uh, you can see uh, what the uh, where the direction of the court is is really headed. Because what I found alarming when you go back and you check the statistical data from uh, most of the Supreme Court rulings over the past year was how often Alito and uh, John Roberts voted with Thomas and Scalia. So when Alito was called Scalito, uh, jokingly during his confirmation hearings, we now know what that's all about. Another interesting thing that I ran across as I was sort of catching up on some of my reading uh, from my vacation from a couple weeks ago was this new book out by uh, Ron Suskind, The One Percent Doctrine, Deep Inside America's Pursuit of Its Enemies Since 9-11. Ron Suskind, of course, uh, co-wrote uh, Paul O'Neill's memoirs that appeared several uh, years ago. Uh, of course, the most alarming thing, uh, besides the fact that Paul O'Neill made the observation that Mr. Bush was uh, fairly uh, devoid of, of any personal involvement in setting policy, that he was a fairly, um, you know, he's basically a puppet president. And the real power in the Bush administration, of course, is in the hands of Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. This 1% doctrine is a theory, by the way, that uh, Dick Cheney has concocted. And it's called... Um, and, and, and uh, I'm reading here from uh, Mashiko Kakutani's uh, review. She's the New York Times' uh, 
preeminent book reviewer regarding this 1% doctrine. And Mr. Suskind, and I'm quoting from here, discloses that first, the, the first data corporation, one of the world's largest processors of credit card transactions, and a parent company of Western Union, began cooperating with the FBI in the wake of 9-11, providing information on financial transactions and wire transfers from around the world. The huge data-gathering operation, in some respects, complemented the uh, National Security Agency's domestic surveillance program, secretly authorized by Mr. Bush months after the September 11th attacks, which monitored specific conversations as well, as uh, what, uh, as well as combed through large volumes of phone and internet traffic in search of patterns that might lead to terrorism suspects. We, of course, are, are constantly being. Um, the Bush administration will will have these show uh, these these press uh, briefings. You know, just just a couple of weeks ago, right in the. Uh, in the midst of the latest New York Times disclosures about SWIFT, we, of course, had um, Alberto Gonzalez, and I'm quoting here from Frank Rich. He writes, uh, One looming embarrassment was the breathless arrest in Miami of what federal authorities billed as a homegrown terrorist cell, unquote. This amazing feat of daring do had all the melodramatic trappings of a carefully staged administration PR extravaganza. On June 22nd, the FBI director, Robert Mueller, just happened to be on Larry King Live, speaking about his concerns about homegrown terrorists when, by a remarkable coincidence, Larry King announced a report just in from a Miami station on a federal terrorism investigation. The next day, the same day as the Swift story was published, brought the full-dress dog-and-pony show by the intrepid Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez. And, of course, the um, facts about this uh, Miami plot uh, that allegedly involves uh, a program to, uh, or a a, uh, terrorist plot to bring down the Sears uh, Tower in Chicago, uh, as Frank Rich noted, um, turned out, this group turned out neither to have weapons nor explosive nor links to al-Qaeda. Both the FBI and Chicago police said there was no operational threat. But by Saturday, the administration's overhyped victory against the terrorists was already deflating into a national punchline, a nostalgic remembrance of John Ashcroft's orange terror alerts of, of the past. So indeed, this dog and pony show that uh, the government is always engaged in is a fascinating contrast to what's actually really going on. And as this new book by Suskind details, this is what I find somewhat interesting, um, the 1% doctrine, uh, Suskind writes, and I'm quoting here from uh, Kukatani again, uh, inside the CIA, uh, Mr. Cheney was known as Edgar, as in Edgar Bergen, casting Mr. Bush in the puppet role of Charlie McCarthy. Um, This one of the original ventriloquists, by the way. Um, And I think that it's interesting if the CIA indeed has code words uh, for Cheney and Bush, uh, one being Charlie and the other one being Edgar, 
we get a, a fairly good idea of what the CIA actually thinks about the Bush administration because it's very interesting um, this battle between the CIA and Donald Rumsfeld is one of the hidden um, consequences of the so-called war on terror. There's this rivalry where the Bush administration is attempting to give the Pentagon more intelligence responsibility. And this is part of Dick Cheney's theory that the CIA is completely unreliable and thus the only, quote, intelligence worthy of the administration's concern are from these sort of uh, hand-picked toadies that Dick Cheney has uh, distributed throughout the government that are actually loyalists to him. So it's a very interesting battle that uh, continues to um, develop. And interestingly, Susskind writes about this so-called plausible deniability concept that the Bush administration continues to utilize, in which, quote, keeping certain knowledge from Bush, much of it shrouded as well as uh, by classification, meant that the president, whose each word circles around the globe, could advance various strategies by saying whatever was needed. He could essentially be, quote, deniable about his own statements. And we've seen this repeatedly. The Bush administration has, in fact, as um, Lewis Lapham uh, indicated in the March edition of uh, Harper's, in which he had an article, deceived the public more than 250 times, with Mr. Bush making erroneous statements more than 57 times, and the deceptions and the lies continue. Well... We are uh, out of time down here on Gray Matters. Do stay tuned. Yazoo City Calling is coming up next right here on WCBN, FM, and Arbor. Thanks to Chaz for engineering. And take it away, Jerry. Hi. Uh, actually, Jerry's not here tonight. Uh, my name is Morgan. I've been here a couple weeks ago. And, uh, yep, well, I'm filling in tonight. But uh, it's going to be a similar type material. Um, I'll just tell you what we're starting off with here. First two artists. Um, First, it's going to be Carl Martin doing the Crow Jane Blues, and then Scrapper Blackwell, and then we'll get into Sun House, and uh, there'll be some other things, too. Um, but uh, So without much further ado, let's get to it. Baby 